Welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Greg Wilpert. Last Wednesday, a group of 26 mercenaries broke into the residence of Haiti's president, Jovenel Moise, and assassinated him in a hail of bullets. The mercenaries appear to have consisted mostly of Colombians and two Haitian Americans. The assassination has left the country in shock and upheaval. Meanwhile, Haiti's interim prime minister, Claude Joseph, has declared a state of siege, and a second prime minister, Ariel Henry, is claiming to be the actual prime minister because he had been appointed by Moise a mere two days before his assassination. Uncertainty over Haiti's future now looms larger than ever. Joining me to help make sense of what is happening in Haiti is Kim Ives. He's a longtime editor and writer for the publication Haiti Liberté. Thanks for joining me today, Kim. Thank you, Greg. An honor to be with you. So, uh, from the outside, and based on most mainstream news reports, it would seem that Haiti is in the process of descending into a spiral of chaos and violence at the moment, which, if true, does not seem like it would benefit anyone. So, why do you think, then, that uh, Moise was assassinated, and uh, who or what sectors stand to benefit from his assassination? Okay, it appears to be coming more and more clear that the infamous bourgeois figure, Reginald Boulos, who backed coup d'etats against President Jean-Bertrand Aristide in 1991 and 2004, is the intellectual author and probably the principal financial backer of this assassination team. Uh, we suspected this from the very start because the assailants arrived at the home of Jovenel Moise in nine brand new Nissan patrol vehicles without license plates. Where would they have gotten those except from a dealership? And who owns the dealership? Reginald Boulos. Furthermore, the week before the assassination, Reginald Boulos had an arrest warrant put out against him by President Jovenel Moise. And apparently, Moise was on the verge of seizing many of his assets, which are quite extensive in Haiti. Uh, he uh, was at great odds and was a big supporter of the mobilizations against Moise. He was uh, becoming a presidential candidate and had founded a party called the Movement for the Third Way. And uh, so uh, it seems to be coming very apparent that uh, his hand plays heavily in this, and already the Haitian people have come to that conclusion. They have uh, deshouquet, that means uprooted, his uh, dealership in, uh, uh, in Haiti uh, called Otomeka, which sold Nissan <laughs> patrol vehicles. And uh, the, really the big question is, to some extent, uh, the U.S. Embassy had to be aware of these people. They're monitoring cell phone traffic and internet traffic and texting and so forth. Uh, it seems almost impossible that they couldn't have been aware that this was going to go down. Uh, and so now you have to think, what interest would the U.S. have in not flagging this and, you know, giving somebody a, um, a warning? Now, there has been a report that the uh, chief of police 
was asked at one point, a guy called Leon Charles, who was a close collaborator of the U.S., uh, headed the police department back in 2004 and 5 during the third coup d'etat against um, uh, the third intervention after the coup d'etat against Jean-Bertrand Aristide. He was the police chief, um, and we detailed this in Haiti Liberté uh, about his role as police chief. Uh, WikiLeaks documents uh, laid it out pretty clearly. Uh, but he was brought back last fall and has become, um, you know, uh, really an agent of the U.S. Uh, so he apparently gave uh, the green light for the, uh, he reportedly gave the green light for the mercenaries to go up the hill to Jovenel Moise's house because uh, they were stopped apparently by a satellite USGPN, that means the uh, Presidential Guard Special Unit, um, at, the, at, a, at a checkpoint up the, prior to going up the hill to the house. So um, we haven't confirmed that, but uh, this seems to be also a, a report that is uh, re being repeated often. Um, uh, so in any case, the U.S. Embassy must have known it's going down, and what we're wondering at Haiti Liberté was, the, did they want it to go down precisely to provide the pretext for a U.S. military intervention in Haiti? Uh, because a hundred years ago, in 1915, during the first U.S. military intervention, their pretext was because a uh, president, President Guillaume Sam, had been torn limb from limb by an enraged mob when he tried to go hide in the French embassy. And that was the pretext for soldiers coming in then. In 1994, for the second intervention, it was the machine gunning of a liberation theologian priest. Uh, and that provided the pretext for Bill Clinton to send in 20,000 troops to bring back Aristide. So now we're wondering if this isn't, once again, another grisly murder which uh, can allow the U.S. to say, oh my God, look how incredibly savage and crazy Haiti is, and you know, we have to go in and uh, help them. Now add to this picture the fact that the guy who is now the acting head of state, a guy called Claude Joseph, former uh, uh, foreign minister, was then the interim prime minister, but as you said, has been replaced by Ariel Henry. But Claude Joseph is a creation of the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, back in 2003 and four, during the coup against Aristide, or the run-up to the coup against Aristide, uh, he was uh, the leader of a group uh, a student organization, which um, it was uh, NED-backed, and uh, as well of a, as of a uh, an NGO called the Citizens Initiative. Um, so this guy seems also to have been a U.S. asset. So what we have right now is a U.S. asset asking the U.S. to come in to, you know, take over the country. And why do they need to take over the country? Because there's a revolution underway, it appears. Uh, the shanty towns of Port-au-Prince have been... Sorry, Kim, before you, you mm -hmm. get into that, I just want to ask a different question, and I want to go to back to that point, but 
um, basically about um, uh, Moise himself. I mean, mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier that um, he uh, that uh, that uh, the that uh, Bolanos, the the, uh, the member of the bourgeoisie, who is yeah. Bulos, sorry, uh, that who is potentially um, behind this was also behind the efforts to overthrow Aristide. But Moise was not an Aristide-type president, was he? I mean, who was he, and who did he represent? Okay, Moise was um, a representative of what's called the Haitian Bald-Headed Party, which was essentially a neo-devalurist party. Uh, after, uh, just to go back a little bit for the viewers on uh, recent Haitian history, Haiti was under a dictatorship for 30 years from 1957 to 1986 when Jean-Claude Duvalier was overthrown by a popular uprising, which to some extent the U.S. acquiesced to because it was removing its tin horn dictators like Pinochet, uh, like Marcos, etc. during that period and replacing them with these sort of uh, facade democracies where they would have a leader uh, elected uh, through an election they bought and paid for, and then they would be backed up by the quote-unquote international peacekeeping force, and the, the armies were sent back to the barracks. Uh, unfortunately, the formula misfired in Haiti, and the wrong candidate was elected, not the one who spent the most money, like in the U.S., but uh, the parish priest, uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who had a uh, flood of people, what's called Lavalas in Creole, uh, come out to hoist him to power. So it was a huge misfunction. In fact, the first big misfunction of U.S. Uh, election engineering. And in fact, it became the spark, we could say, for the pink tide that went across uh, Latin America, because Hugo Chavez saw it happen in Venezuela, uh, Evo Morales in Bolivia, etc., etc., and pretty soon we started to see the same revolution through election uh, formula uh, play out in other countries. So, uh, Reginald Boulos and other members of the bourgeoisie were absolutely horrified to have these these. Uh, candidates who were coming from the people, supported by the people, winning the presidency. This was unheard of. And so they supported the coup in September. Uh, Aristide was first elected in December 1990 and overthrown in September 1991. And um, it happened a second time after his election in 2000, and he was overthrown in 2004. Both of those coups, Reginald Boulos and the bourgeoisie supported. But uh, basically, from that interregnum between 1991, when Aristide was first elected, and 2011, when uh, Michel Martelly came in, and we'll get to Michel Martelly in a moment, there was both Lavalas and sort of Lavalas light governments. Uh, it was Jean-Bertrand Aristide, then a fellow called René Preval, who was his first prime minister and often called his twin, uh, they had some friction, but basically they were of the same ilk, uh, both kind of social democratic governments and somewhat resistant to the U.S., basically uh, slow-walking a lot of the dictates, and the U.S. wasn't completely happy with either. They were more unhappy with Aristide, they gave him two coups, but they weren't completely happy with uh, Preval either, who brought in the Petro-Caribe deal with Venezuela. Um, so... 
basically, after the earthquake in 2010, the U.S. had a great opportunity. It had basically taken over the Haitian state with Bill Clinton as one of the sort of governor generals of the whole operation, and they carried out an election in November 2010 and uh, uh, in um, March 2011. And the uh, candidate who they essentially shoehorned in was this fellow called Michel Martelly, a ribald Haitian compas singer who uh, was essentially a neo-devaluerist. And what this means is he represented both the old landed oligarchy and the Comprador bourgeoisie uh, alliance, which had grown against the Lavalas, against Aristide in particular. So uh, the neo-devaluerist government of Martelly was marred by all the same things as marred the Duvalier dictatorship, corruption, repression, graft, uh, 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 excess, etc. And when he was losing power again, in, in uh, uh, finally at the end of his five-year term in 2016, he anointed Jovenel Moise as his uh, successor. Now, Jovenel Moise had by far the best-funded campaign. They hired the same election engineers that had brought Martelly into power. They had, were flush with money from robbing, uh, taking most uh, of the 75% uh, of the money out of the Petro-Caribe Fund, because what Venezuela did, what Hugo Chavez did for Haiti was say, not only are we giving you cheap oil, about 20,000 barrels a day, but you can keep 40% of the revenues in an account called the Petro-Caribe Fund, which is repayable after 25 years at 1% interest. So, you know, the, 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 the Martelly people went to town on this money. They basically uh, spent almost all of it, and uh, on, on what? On nothing. And that's what's called the big movement of where did the Petro-Caribe money go. In any case, I digress, because Jovenel Moise was essentially brought into power thanks to this money. I mean, Hugo Chavez will be rolling in his grave. Uh, and the um, resulting period uh, was now the second PHTK chapter, but they had a big problem because Jovenel came in in 2017. There was a one-year interim government because Martelly hadn't held any elections and they had to uh, work it out for a year. So he came in in 2017, but unfortunately that's the same year Donald Trump was coming into power. Trump upped the sanctions on Venezuela. The Petro-Caribe deal sank. And now, all of a sudden, Jovenel had no money because he couldn't even pay Venezuela for the gas he was getting because of the sanctions, which stopped bank transfers and so forth. So now, Jovenel ended up uh, having an even more difficult situation than Martelly had because here was a corrupt, repressive guy without the money. And so this is where he started to get into problem with the bourgeoisie because a lot of the sweetheart deals that the bourgeoisie had been getting and the party that they were having with Petro-Caribe money suddenly came to a crashing halt. And Jovenel Moïse was there saying, you got to give some money back. And they were saying, you got to get out of there. And so that's how we arrived at the uh, situation we have today, where they're in fact backing his assassination. Okay. 
Well, so um, let's go to the next part that you were about to start before I interrupted, um, which is, you know, the the situation on the ground now um, and the mo other motivation. So it seems like there's two motivations. So on the one hand, you've got the uh, the bourgeoisie upset with uh, Moise and his inability to provide for them, but then you have other developments on the ground. So talk about those. What what was happening with particularly what are being referred to in the mainstream media, the, the gangs that supposedly control up to one third of Port-au-Prince and have been become very influential. Right. So while the bourgeoisie is having a party hardy uh, uh, with Petro-Caribe money, the masses are starving. They are sinking deeper and deeper into poverty. And uh, the authority of the state is also crumbling. The police uh, the state has no control really over these vast shanty towns because over the course of the past um, uh, 50 years and with particular acceleration after the fall of Duvalier in 1986, the U.S. installed neoliberal policies uh, for Haitian, for the Haitian economy and this meant basically destroying Haitian agriculture driving peasants off the land through dumping of U.S. rice, for instance, on Haiti, which used to produce 80% of its own rice. Now, it, it doesn't have a, the rice-growing region of the Artibonite, what used to be emerald green, is now brown, and uh, so on and so forth. This happened for sugar, even, uh, which was, you know, what Haiti was known for once. Um, uh, coffee, lemons... Uh, you name it, the, the, the Haitian agriculture was destroyed and the peasants all ended up in the cities. Uh, they were driven into the cities and, you know, for the U.S. this was good because what they needed was cheap labor. They needed people who would work for $5 a day or $3 a day as uh, the WikiLeaks cable showed that uh, the, uh, the, um, the Clinton administration fought for, or excuse me, the Obama, the Obama administration fought for. So the resu result was these huge um, uh, seas of the lumpen proletariat, thousands of displaced peasants living in shanty towns with no sanitation, no electricity, no housing. Uh, the earthquake hit, you know, many of them died. Um, uh, you know, the people are are, are, are pooping into plastic bags to throw them into uh, totally plastic bag and plastic bottle clogged canals which overflow when rains and floods the, the neighborhoods with this foul water and, you know, housing that is crumbling. I mean, it, it's a nightmare situation. So in this uh, situation of no sanitation, no electricity, no housing, uh, no roads, uh, no services. Uh, there emerge strongmen in the uh, shanty towns of Port-au-Prince and other cities, and um, they form. They began as vigilance brigades after the Tuvalier regime fell. The Tontamacoutes, which were its principal paramilitary corps. Uh, the eyes, ears, and fists of the regime uh, went into free agent status and started to prey on the former popular neighborhoods that they used to have license from the government to um, bully and uh, take money from and do what they wanted. Uh, so the people began to organize into these vigilance brigades, which started first by 
hitting pots and pans when the bad guys were coming around. Then they started to take machetes to fight them. And then it went up to guns. And pretty soon they started to be hired by the bourgeoisie to do things like protect their store, protect their factory, protect their land, which was always being encroached on by homeless people. And then they started to use them for even offensive purposes, like going to burn the gas station of a rival or the store of a rival, and pretty soon use them to fight each other for political power. You know, go mess up this guy who's going to have his candidate challenge my candidate. So pretty soon you had this uh, almost uh, business model that grew where gangs were used by the bourgeoisie, which would arm them to do its dirty work and to maintain power, both economic and political. Uh, so this began to reach its zenith, you could say, under Jovenel Moise and the PHTK. And, you know, there were huge gang wars, but what really started to uh, traumatize and terrorize the Haitian people were the kidnappings. The kidnappings started to happen on a vast scale. And it, in fact, the whole, the whole idea of kidnapping began, above all, with the kidnapping of President Jean-Bertrand Aristide by a U.S. SEAL team in 2004. And that's when the people said, oh, kidnapping's on the table. It's a lot like after the French kidnapped an Algerian revolutionary, and then suddenly uh, uh, a, kidnap uh, a hijacking became used by the you know, revolutionaries of the world to hijack a plane to Cuba. Well, same thing happened in Haiti. The people started to use uh, kidnapping against the, the, the bourgeoisie originally, or well-to-do people coming in, but it started to filter down into the population. Well, enter a guy called Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier. He was called Barbecue because he grew up the eighth child of a, of a poor street vendor of meats uh, who, and there were three Jimmys in the neighborhood, so they gave each one a nickname for what their parent did. And his mother sold barbecue meat, so he became Jimmy Barbecue. Anyway, he went on to become a very stellar gung-ho policeman uh, with the Haitian police, part of a specialized unit called the Departmental Unit for the Maintenance of Order, UDMO, which had the purpose of go fighting the gangs and trying to stop gang violence and crime. And he was based in Cité Soleil, and he got uh, a um, order in 2017 to go uh, face off against some gangs with other units from around the city in uh, a zone of southern Port-au-Prince called uh, Grand Ravine. And in, at, at the school, the operation went very badly. The police got ambushed. Two cops got killed. There was firefights between the uh, police and the gang members. And there may have been some uh, civilian casualties. And after their words, there was a pretty big death toll, nine or ten dead. So, um, and plus the two policemen who were ambushed. So, Cherizier uh, was in the middle of all that, and I, I can give the, the full story at a later time. But the long and short of it was the human rights organizations, which 
were funded by the National Endowment for Democracy and very close to the U.S. Embassy. We're all over this. And uh, this terrified the police leadership uh, who had ordered them. And it was overseen by the U.N. peacekeeping force, which was still in the country. And as a result, um, they started to disavow the operation and say it wasn't us because they were afraid for their jobs. They said it was it was a rogue operation. It was Jimmy Sherry's year. And they were trying to pin it on him. So, you know, he became uh, totally indignant, was outraged that, that here this uh, uh, body that he was um, serving uh, in an exemplary fashion would turn on him and betray him in this way. So he didn't even answer their summons for disciplinary action because he said, you know, you're not going to hang it on me. Now, uh, at the same time, He's in his neighborhood of Delma 6, and the, there's the, there are criminal elements in the neighborhood. And he said, I want to clean up this neighborhood. He launched an organization called, I forget the name now, but something like the Renewal of Delma. And he went with his uh, UDMO colleagues and comrades, and he went to the uh, uh, headquarters, the base the, uh, uh, of the gang, and they went in with their M-16s and they said, you know, good morning, gentlemen, uh, or good evening. Uh, uh, you guys are doing bad things. You're raping girls. You're kidnapping people. You're extorting money from merchants. You're, you're stealing things. Uh, that's all going to stop. Uh, you're either going to stop that or you're going to get out of here or we're going to kill you. Those are your choices. And most of them fled. Most of them went to neighboring neighborhoods like La Saline or Bel Air, uh, Cité Soleil. And uh, so his neighborhood got sort of cleaned up, but he had a lot of people with grudges against him in the neighboring neighborhoods. Uh, and so uh, along comes um, uh, Cherizier is now starting to be in conflict with the police leadership. He gets in touch with some of these bourgeois opposition leaders, including Reginald Boulos and a fellow called Yuri La Tortue, who is the former death squad leader, allegedly, according to uh, a testimony of a woman who uh, spoke to the UN back in uh, 2005 uh, and uh, became what was what the U.S. Embassy called the poster boy for political corruption in Haiti and a mafia don. Uh, so uh, Cherizier was dealing with these guys, and then he learned they were both scoundrels. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but he ended up at odds with them. And so he was being radicalized very rapidly and, and very dramatically. He was being radicalized. And he took his formula for Delma 6, and he said, you know, we have to do this among all the neighborhoods, and we have to stop fighting among each other, because this is one of the things that the bourgeois opposition was trying to have them do. They were trying to put guns in the hands of the people to fight with, you know, Jovenel and Block Jovenel and do their dirty work. And he said, you guys are dirty, rotten. Jovenel, I, I, I don't like him either. Uh, Cherizier had supported uh, uh, an, another candidate against him, a, a fellow called Jude Celestin, who was the one knocked out of the ring by um, uh, uh, the U.S. Um, so he ended up becoming um, a bitter enemy of both Jovenel and his bourgeois opposition. He's had a pox on both your houses. 
And I, the only thing I want is for the situation of my people in my neighborhood to improve, for them to have schools, hospitals, roads, internet, sanitation, all the things that a good, a healthy society needs. And he started to, in the other key element of his program was, we have to stop fighting among each other, we in the neighborhoods, we the poor. He said, stop using these guns to fight each other and kill e each other, and let's turn our guns on the bourgeoisie, because they're the ones who are hurting us. And so now, he makes a coalition called the G9, which is um, a, a, a number of neighborhoods in Cité Soleil, Martisan, and Delma region. And uh, their thing is to stamp out crime in their neighborhoods. But he wants to make peace with the ones who even don't join the G9. And they continue doing kidnapping, like in the town of Grand Ravine, in the uh, neighborhood of Grand Ravine, Village de Dieu, and an area outside, like Croix de Bouquet, called, where a gang called Katsa Maozo, 400 Maozo, uh, was based. So even though they're doing their crimes, uh, they, they weren't going to war with them. And so when the G9 was formed last uh, June, in June of 2020, uh, there, was, there was basically a truce between the gangs. There weren't gang wars happening in Port-au-Prince during that past year. But in June, according to my sources in the UN, uh, and uh, the uh, opposition came and gave a lot of money to one of these kidnapping gang, uh, gang leaders, a guy called Tilapli in, Gra in Grand Ravine, to attack the neighboring neighborhood of Tibois. Uh, and the same thing happened in Bel Air, which attacked Delma. And the same thing happened in Cité Soleil, which attacked the G9 groups out there, Mathias, Iskar. And so gang warfare engulfed Port-au-Prince. And it, uh, Cherizier was shot. Yeah, he was very lucky. It, it went right through his chest, right near his heart, but it didn't hit anything. He was okay. Uh, and so the result was he was being radicalized, pushed more and more. And now the uh, G9 uh, changed its name just last week to the revolutionary forces of the G9 family and allies. Mess with one, you mess with all. That's their full official name. And they said they were formally launching a revolution to overturn the system in Haiti, this dirty, rotting system. He'd been saying this since 2020, but it really became formalized. And he said to the bourgeoisie, and he was talking to Boulos and some of the others who are with him, uh, we are going to your grocery stores, we are going to your car dealerships, we are going to your banks, and we are going to take what's ours. Our money is in your banks, uh, our, uh, the food that we should be having is in your stores, and the cars that we never even get to see uh, are, are in your lots. And so uh, this terrified people like Bulos. So there are two elements here. On the one hand, uh, there's the rivalry with uh, Moise, Jovenel Moise, but there is this looming threat of the rising lumpen proletariat of uh, Port-au-Prince and other cities 
uh, declaring revolution. So it became very urgent to get um, Jovenel Moise's dead hand off the tiller, to get this guy who was getting in the way out of the, there. And so to me, this was behind it. And to some extent, the U.S. was equally alarmed by this emergence of Cherizier and uh, sees that they got to come with another military occupation. Now, they can't execute it themselves, so that's our big question now. Was the fact that this operation went so disastrously wrong at the end that these guys have all been caught and, you know, it's all going to be traced back to Bulos, was this the result of sheer incompetence and stupidity, or was there a betrayal in the picture, and was this precisely the result the U.S. wanted to get so they could have a result like 1915, like 1994, to provide a pretext for U.S. military intervention in Haiti. Well, what I think is interesting is that uh, I just read a report that um, uh, I guess it was Ivoro Uribe and uh, Ivan Duque in Colombia are uh, mobilizing to send, so to speak, their own investigation, presumably to uh, cover up their own involvement, assuming that they are involved. But um, and so, so there seems to be a confluence of efforts in any case to, to pin the blame for all of this probably uh, on the, the gangs and not on uh, Colombian and U.S. involvement. Um, so uh, I'm just wondering, you know, this might still work out, especially considering that, uh, I mean, for the U.S. or for the bourgeoisie in, in, in uh, Haiti, but um, especially since uh, the Haitian government officials apparently have now officially I think I don't know how official it is. They said unnamed officials, but have asked for U.S. intervention, military intervention in Haiti uh, to protect the infrastructure and so on. And the U.S. has already said that they will send um, a, uh, a team from the FBI to to evaluate and assess what what the U.S. involvement will be. So anyway, it's, so the long game definitely seems to be pointing towards that direction of U.S. intervention. And I'm just wondering um, now if that is the case, what would that mean for Haiti, assuming that uh, that the U.S. does end up sending troops? Well, first of all, I just want to get a little bit more of what you think the likelihood is of that happening, and secondly, uh, what that would mean for Haiti. I would say it's almost a certainty uh, right now. Uh, I mean, the Washington Post uh, editorial from yesterday, uh, today's New York Times, uh, the meetings in the Security Council, it's just how is it going to happen? Right now, it appears to be the U.S. going alone. In the past, and as we know across the world, the U.S. likes to go in a coalition. So it has lots of fig leaves around its bayonet uh, going into these countries. Um, and, of course, the, the best fig leaf is the U.N. Security Council. Now, they have a problem there because Biden has all but declared war on China. And hopefully China, I don't know what happened in the Security Council today. I think they met. But uh, hopefully China is going to put the kibosh on any uh, uh, efforts by the U.S. to use the U.N. Again, once again as its neo-colonial proxy, as it, as it did basically from 2004 until uh, the U.N. peacekeeping troops left Haiti completely in 2019. Um, it was basically a 15-year operation that was supposed to be six months originally. So, uh, you know, uh, we see how, how they work. Um, 
uh, the other option, and I think that's why Duque, who almost immediately came out and said, oh, we need an OAS peacekeeping force. As we know, the OAS has this thing called the Inter-American Charter, which I believe it needs two-thirds of the OAS members, it's 33 members, to ratify. Uh, so was this – did – I mean, here's just uh, me making a hypothesis off the cuff. Did the U.S., fully knowing what Bulos was up to and, you know, how terrible a uh, result it was going to be, a, a, a president, you know, executed in his home, uh, was this to shock the conscience, not just of Haitians, but of the local region, the Caribbean countries, who are quite leery of the U.S., like the Latin American countries, into action so that they will agree to, you know, help this country which has totally lost its way and is – you know, uh, you know, create this 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 crisis, this bloody crisis, this horrible situation that they have to come in and help remedy. Um, I think this is not far fetched at all. And uh, <clears throat> the other element of it is that the uh, the OAS though is having a uh, is faced with another sort of pink tide 2.0 happening. We see what happened in Peru. We see the victory in Bolivia. Uh, Maduro is holding on. Uh, uh, the, the Sandinistas in, in Nicaragua are holding on. So they may end up having a harder time than they think even getting this OAS uh, 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 inter-American charter uh, through and have the first OAS intervention since the 1965 intervention in the Dominican Republic next door, uh, uh, which, of course, was very bloody and terrible as well. But, you know, in the end, they can do like they did in Grenada, and they make, you know, a coalition with local Caribbean countries. They only need two or three or four. They could probably get Duque. Surely they'd get Bolsonaro, maybe Honduras. I don't know. A few other countries might sign on to such a such an adventure. And they go in and uh, try to uh, 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 you know, ma basically put down this rebellion in the shanty towns. They would target Cherizier. They would target the G9. They would, you know, I think it, I think it could end up being a very now. Just to go back to 1915, <laughs> there was at that time <clears throat> a movement prior to the Marines' intervention called the Cacos, and the Cacos were basically peasants who were rebelling. Um, in the countryside and joining various armies which were fighting each other. So they were kind of seen as bandits. They were, they were kind of seen as uh, the gangs of the day. But after the U.S. Marines came in in 1915, they went and they uh, were very brutal with one particular uh, lieutenant, a guy called Charlemagne Peralt, who uh, ended up... Uh, being indignant, he went up into the mountains on the central plateau of Haiti, and he organized the Kakos into a severe fighting force, uh, which gave the Marines real pushback and really fought hard against them. And um, the, the Kako resistance went on uh, for uh, a number of years until uh, 1918 or 19, I forget now which, when they assassinated Charmaine Peralt, the Marine put on blackface, snuck into their camp, and shot him uh, in the camp. But he became 
a hero. He was the Sandino, if you will, of, of Haiti. And um, they may face a similar situation today, you know, with the shanty towns. They did get that pushback in 2004 and five. There were a number of uh, resistance uh, figures in the slums of Port-au-Prince, in Port-au-Prince, in Bel Air, in Cité Soleil, a figure called Dread Will May, another called Amaral, uh, another called Bertoni, uh, they, uh, another called Evans. Um, they all uh, were either killed or arrested, and that was put down. But in a way, Cherizier's movement is more robust and uh, maybe uh, more difficult to put down. They have more firepower. They're more organized, even though it's not a party. It's not something which has a real structure. It's really a series of allied fiefdoms, if you will. Uh, but uh, they could pose a serious force for the U.S. to overcome, especially since the increasing the, the G9 in this, this resistance increasingly has the support of the Haitian people, despite the huge demonization campaign that has been waged by the U.S. Embassy's human rights groups, like uh, what's called the RNDDH, which is the Haitian Network for the Defense of Human Rights, um, the radio stations, which all belong to the bourgeoisie by and large, uh, which have been, you know, vilifying him, and of course all the mainstream press, Washington Post, um, NED outfits like uh, Insight, uh, news, um, etc., EP, uh, you know, they've all done portraits which have uh, basically demonized Aristide, uh, Aristide demonized uh, Cherizier, much as they did demonize Aristide, and uh, will continue, will really step it up now. He's going to become just the, the biggest villain we've ever heard of, you know, in the coming days. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on what's happening and uh, maybe have you back on. Um, but uh, it really sounds like a very serious situation at the moment. But um, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, I'm speaking to Kim Ives, longtime editor with the publication Haiti Liberté. Thanks again, Kim, for having been on the program. Thank you, Greg. And thanks to our viewers and listeners for joining the Analysis.News. Please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and to donate something at the Analysis.News website so we can continue to provide programming such as this.